talk just a little bit about that and uh, tell us uh, what you think and what the evidence is or is not with respect to General Hood, uh, Hood's use of uh, laudanum or some such substance. The, of course, the Battle of Spring Hill or the fiasco of Spring Hill is on November 29, 1864. Uh, Hood, thinking back to the great days of the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, thinks on a turning movement of the Union position and uh, uh, catching to try and catch John McAllister Schofield asleep. Now, Schofield is not one of my favorite people, and I would say, don't let him behind your back, although he, <laughs> Illinois claims him. Uh, and, uh, he, and the Confederates will uh, uh, partially accomplish their mission as Harry Wilson makes a big blunder and in his first engagements with Forrest and falls back on Franklin, letting the, rear, uh, letting the Confederates have a free ride, at least with Forrest, into the Union rear at Spring Hill. Union troops, however, are able to uh, fend off Forrest, and the Confederates will bring up their troops throughout the uh, early afternoon. Now, uh, the, the Confederate plan is to deploy uh, the man who will, uh, the Corps, by the man who will endorse Jack Daniels after the Civil War. <laughs> of course, there is no Jack Daniels at that time, is Ben Frank Cheatham's Corps, and they will, uh, they will deploy and there will be, uh, and they will move uh, advance uh, westward to try and place themselves astride the Franklin Pike. Now, Cheatham will be thinking one thing. Hood will be thinking another. Uh, they th uh, items the Confederates begin to go wrong when uh, Luther Bradley's men fire into Claiborne's uh, right flank, and as you know, Claiborne has to wheel to the right uh, to, move, uh, to engage Luther Bradley's brigade, and it begins to draw, uh, it draws Cheatham and Claiborne into different views. One is uh, one is thinking to draw, advance northward into Spring Hill, other is to astride, put themselves astride uh, the Columbia Pike. Now Hood, of course, first off, you do not place a man in command of an army who has a withered left arm and supposedly <laughs> one of the four men in all the Civil War who's going to survive a disarticulated amputation of the right leg, it could be the left leg, of, of either, of either ex, uh, a lower extremity. It's a very difficult operation, uh, leaves him uh, uh, with a prosthesis but no hip uh, joint. That means he has to get strapped into the saddle and he is apparently, uh, if he is not, on, he is apparently on uh, laudanum and he may be even on a stimulant at the same time. Regardless of whether he's on laudanum or uh, a stimulant at the same time, he retires to the Absalom Thomas Thompson house along with Governor Harris and retires for the night. And no one particularly uh, uh, disturbs him. They'll show you the condition of them are. Uh, they'll talk about an order sent to Hood that Hood, never, uh, Hood will send to Cheatham that Cheatham will never receive, and the order was never sent. So there's a, it's, an, it's a serious problem of leadership. But the, leadership, the problem should really rest, do you place a man in command of a major force with those type of disabilities? You, I don't think you would do it today even when an officer would be traveling in uh, helicopters or such. 
Uh, so it's, uh, you would look into the failure of, uh, of the Confederate leadership to place a man with that type of disabilities uh, uh, in command of a force. I should add that the loss for the good lady's benefit, the loss of a, a, a withered left arm, a disarticulated amputation of the right leg at the hip, and being trashed by uh, Sally Buck Preston, one of the pinup girls of the Confederacy, uh, really doesn't bother his uh, later life as he will marry and within 11 years will father uh, 10, uh, 12 children. Three <laughs> sets of twins. So you, you got a lot of hope there for him. He'll, he'll die in 1879. All right, you got a gentleman, you got some over here. Okay. Let's do Nate first because I can get to him easier. I've been waiting for this for years. Just to be able to talk to you, not talking question. You have been so authoritative on battles and war and have been a tremendous help to me, and we've spoken of Patton. You know all the wars and all the conflicts and Patton spoke of the possibility of a prior life. Who, if anybody, were you in the Civil War? <laughs> Who are, I do not believe, I, I, unfortunately I don't have the advantage of believing as General Patton did, but I can, I, I can fantasize, of course. <laughs> So if I'm going to fantasize on prior life, uh, if you're, of course we're talking about the Civil War, who am I going to fantasize if I'm going to be? Now I'm going to put off first, uh, in your age, you, as you become interested in the Civil War, you fantasize of being different people. Now the first person I was really familiar with in the Civil War is uh, 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 the, uh, plume, uh, the Plume Cavalier. I became, that's J, J, James Ewell Brown Stewart. I became familiar with him uh, when I was in the seventh grade when my father read to me the laudatory biography of, of Stewart uh, by uh, Major Thomason of the Marine Corps. So in my youth, yes, I fantasized to be the, the plume cavalier. Now, when my, uh, when my feeling for being the plume cavalier, as I fantasize, it vanishes rapidly under the realities of World War II. Now, if I had been a pursuit pilot, if I had uh, 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 been, uh, I guess, a pursuit pilot, I might have still fantasized I was Jeb Stewart. Uh, but, of course, uh, being a grunt, a Marine Corps grunt, you soon uh, differentiate between the flyers uh, the, uh, the Hellcats and the Corsairs and the Ground Pounders. So naturally my uh, fantasizing will then move toward uh, Ground Pounders. Now on leadership, uh, uh, on leadership of people, if you're going to talk about, uh, we'll, we'll keep it on the general level. If you're going to the colonel level, I could argue that David Ireland is a more inspiring leader than Joshua Chamberlain, but I'm not going to get in that type of argument. Uh, but I will say right now, uh, the people I would more aspire to be are two men who are fighting generals. Uh, of course, uh, that would be if I was uh, speaking, I am going to put most of these, use two armies. 
Now, if I was a union, my hero of the Union Army right now is uh, Hancock the Superb. And my favorite Confederate is Nathan Bedford Forrest. They both are uh, fighting men. They are both uh, uh, people who can inspire their men. Uh, they, are, they can make decisions. For instance, at, if we go at Gettysburg on the second day, which is a crucial day where the Union Army can be beaten. After, for instance, uh, Hancock, uh, uh, Longstreet will chew up brigade after brigade of Union troops uh, down in the wheat field area. And you can visualize what would have happened if, uh, we'll take, first we'll look where the, we'll first go through where Hancock is. Now an inspiring leader is where the danger is. You can just imagine poor old Colonel, you can imagine first uh, poor, poor Colonel Willard with his Harper's Ferry cowards. And Hancock will direct them uh, down to uh, blunt the Confederate attack spearheaded by Barksdale that is sweeping away the Union forces into the area uh, beyond end uh, of uh, 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 Plum Run. You can, uh, even better, you can think of poor old Colonel Colville. When this guy, six foot two, losing the Battle of the Bulge, because why does he wear a frock coat? Because he's a very proud man. He has a loud commanding voice and is known. A.A. Humphreys might be able to cuss better than he can, uh, but he can't, does not have the loud commanding voice Hancock has. And I'm sure when he went to Colville and told him, I want you to charge those flags, and Colville will say, what? I, I will question it. I'm sure it was uh, with a lot of profanity. Also, you can question uh, when, uh, when Rand's right gets to the very wall and Hancock throws people in there. He'll throw, send people even off to where he can't see them, off to, little, off to a cemetery ridge. Where is Alter Egos on the other side? When, Dick, when uh, poor old Cadmus Wilcox, when he's attacked by those 250 Minnesotans, uh, with over a thousand men, he'll ask for support. What does Dick Anderson say? Persevere, things will get better. Where is A.P. Hill? He's the little man that wasn't there after making one decision at Gettysburg, the worst decision any Confederate will make once they're in the proximity there of sending two divisions to make a forced reconnaissance. And where is Robert E. Lee? Robert E. Lee, of course, I yeah, should have been uh, knowing that Hill is either ill or, uh, or uh, has serious problems and should have replaced him. So you can see Hancock there. Now, of course, uh, Forrest uh, is, a, is also a character of himself. Uh, uh, you don't want to meet him. Uh, he killed at least 31. He killed altogether uh, one, uh, two people as civilians, and he killed 31 men during the Civil War including two Confederates. So uh, uh, those, are guys, those are guys that inspire you. So I've gone through, as I can say, uh, from the glamour boy uh, who reminds me of Marshall Krolik with a plume cavalier riding around uh, to, the, to, the, to uh, leadership on the field of battle and blood and guts fighters. Probably influenced heavily by my experiences in World War II. Uh, Ed, what in your opinion was more decisive to the outcome of the war, the Vicksburg campaign or the Gettysburg campaign? 
All right. That's easy. Well, I've been asked a question there, Gettysburg or Vicksburg? I, I could argue some other battles were more important, but you focused just on those two battles. So I'm going to be forced to address those two battles. First off, uh, geographically, uh, and uh, on the rise of Grant Vicksburg. Because we have in the Vicksburg campaign, uh, General Grant will do with his forces uh, uh, what, uh, like I'll paraphrase uh, Vince Lombardi. Grant's Vicksburg campaign <clears throat> makes Jackson's Valley campaign look like something out of the Little Sisters from the Poor. <laughs> so we have uh, uh, the rise of Grant. We have the splitting of the Confederacy along the line of the Mississippi. We have the destruction of a Confederate army with vast amounts of, uh, of uh, impedimenta, uh, paroles, <clears throat> Uh, and a uh, number of other things. But you also, now the importance of Gettysburg will not be, on, uh, will uh, focus it a little different. It gives the Union, for the first time, considerable confidence. They have met General Lee when his army is at its highest morale. Uh, Lee, when he went north into uh, Maryland the first time, his army was tired. When they go north to Pennsylvania, his army is fresher than the Confederate army when they arrive in the area of Gettysburg. Because, because between uh, the Halleck's, uh, there we have General Halleck's uh, uh, main defender sitting over there. I remember a wonderful day when, uh, when T. Harry Williams, when, when Steve was a grad student for T. Harry, and they come up to Vicksburg, and we spend the day, T. Harry and I, giving poor Steve a bad time on General Halleck. Of course, Steve has to be somewhat uh, cautious because uh, Harry is his major professor. Uh, so uh, we have, uh, uh, so the, uh, so the, you have the, uh, uh, the decisions of, of Washington, let's Lee get a, about a 10 day head start. On the, on the Union. That means the, Confederate, the Union Army is going to come up much tireder. They're going to be, I'll argue they're more barefooted Yankees at Gettysburg than they are barefooted Confederates. And uh, they're the Union on, their on the ground in defense of the, uh, Pennsylvania will, uh, in essence, shatter Lee's army. Yes, Lee will counterattack, at the wilderness, uh, uh, and, uh, but he will never uh, launch an offensive battle again after that. You might say that you might, some people might say Bristol Station, but that's a maneuver campaign. But uh, basically at Gettysburg, uh, they're going to, uh, the Union Army is going to uh, get, a, get a feeling of themselves, which is important, as Steve has written in his books, on whatever war you have, when soldiers get a feeling in themselves. Up to that time, you could argue, there's a title of a book, uh, Our Master of the Rebels. I think uh, the time that uh, Gettysburg is important because that's when it begins to change. And soon it will be the Yankees are the, by 1864, uh, late 64, the master of the rebels.
uh, Kurt, you made, uh, I hate to point this out, but you made a slight error. Ed was not with us on one of the battlefield tours. It happened in a, in a uh, battle that uh, the tour bus passed one particular point three times, <laughs> and it occurred to me that uh, perhaps we needed some better leadership. So after that, I called Ed. Do you recall the circumstances of that, uh, Ed? Yes, uh, they're bringing up, and I see that <laughs> two other people have their questions up. This is a, this is a fun question. Well, this is 19, it's uh, 1974. And uh, they, uh, uh, I'm not, I've not been invited to lead the tour. So I, uh, uh, sit, uh, I sit back and wait, and finally, about four days, are you coming? Hell no, I ain't coming. <laughs> I'm not going. I'm, I, I got some pride. So they go out there and they have to. They have Big Ed Tinney as a guide, and he. And one of the statements I think that put old Brooks up the uh, up and uh, up in the air. They go by an axe in a tree, and Ed's going to tell him that axe was in the tree, and the tree has grown up, and the axe is up the top of the trees. Uh, so after that time, they, they always call me a year or two years ahead of time. And I saw the title for this program. I thought, nobody's going to stump that beers on this. I know that. But I've become fascinated with the ages of the men in combat and with my World War II work and so on. And I thought, well, I'm just going to ask, who is the youngest division commander? And I know you would be, you, it's going to get you started. I can see that right now. Uh, who was the youngest, who was the youngest company commander in the Civil War? The young, no, the youngest company commander, I'll, I'll, I'll never know, but I will sure tell you who the youngest uh, brigade commander is. It's going to be Galusha Pennypacker at 17 years old. Uh, Custer is not the youngest division commander, uh, uh, and the youngest Confederate division commander is, a uh, 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 brigade commander is J.C.C. Sanders. No, the youngest Confederate uh, division commander is uh, Kelly, uh, who is a division commander. Uh, everybody talks about Pelham. Pelham's only a major. Kelly is in the same class as Pelham, and he's a brigadier general commanding a division when he dies. So those are the two youngest uh, division commanders. <laughs> what? No, uh, 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 Pennypacker is younger. Because Pennypacker never goes to West Point. <laughs> Upton, is Upton, I think, is the youngest uh, West Point. Because Kelly never graduates from West Point, of course. Sir, the name of the hotel at which General Thomas stayed in Nashville during the Hood campaign. Uh, the I, name I, of the I hill on I which Fort Negley. I'm going to have to wrestle. I may get it before. Let me take you. The name of the hill on which Fort Negley is also perched, and was Fort Negley used uh, for defensive purposes, or did it fire on Hood's troops during the uh, Nashville campaign? All right, I'll have to I'll hold in abeyance the hotel. I think I can pull it up. My mind is not as sharp as it used to be, and I have to wrestle with those ties. Now, Fort Nagley, did it fire any during the Battle of uh, Nashville? And the only firing it would have done during the Battle of Nashville is on that early morning thrust 
made by Steedman's division, which is the only one in range at that time, when, as you know, when Steedman comes out on the left uh, to uh, push back the Confederate right. And it, probably, it might have fired some against Steedman's men because they happen to be the only ones in range. And I'll see, hopefully I'll think of that hotel when I don't have to be wrestling with something else. Um, okay, Ed, uh, I want to know uh, about the uh, events on Little Round Top on July 2nd, 1863. Uh, which uh, commander made a greater impact, uh, Strong Vincent or Joshua Chamberlain? I know I'm going to make a lot of enemies. Strong Vincent. Strong Vincent is the man. As Steve knows when you, uh, from his work on World War II. Strong Vincent is, uh, he is, he commands, uh, briefly the scenario, uh, James Barnes, is, he belongs to Barnes's division. Thank God uh, uh, Vincent was there. Barnes is a class of 1829, so he'd be a classmate of Robert Edward Lee's. Now the, uh, the message comes down that uh, when, uh, basically, we're not going through everybody that gets involved, when Warren goes up on Little Round Top and all there are there are a score of Signal Corps types uh, under Norton. And he will then go and send off Randall McKenzie looking for more people. Now, McKenzie goes to Sickles first. Now, Sickles has plenty to keep him busy. Sickles will then send him to see Sykes Sykes sends him to see Barnes. He, fortunately for the Union, he doesn't find Barnes. Barnes is with his two lead brigades. Now this time, Vincent's uh, brigade has, is moving a westward, if you've been there, westward along the Peachtree Road, excuse me, the Wheatfield Road, and it's in the northeast corner of the Wheatfield. And McKenzie, uh, and McKenzie will ride up to uh, Vincent and tell Vincent uh, to put his men up on, uh, on Little Round Top. Vincent does not go to see Barnes. He's going to take the action on his own. So if he takes the action on his own, uh, he has the four regiments, of course, and they move up on the reverse side of Little Round Top. Now, when they move up on the little reverse side of the little round top and get up there, the position, they, they come up, they form in the order of which they march, which means uh, the, uh, the 44th New York on the right, the uh, 83rd Pennsylvania right center, the 20th Maine left center, and the 16th Michigan, the left. When they're in position, it's, it's again Vincent that makes the decision to move 16th Maine, which has seen a lot of combat, to the extreme right, which then puts Vincent, uh, which puts Chamberlain on the extreme left. So every decision that's made that puts Chamberlain where he is is made by Vincent. So. Uh, so then, uh, so Vincent has made the command decisions. One of them, uh, ignoring his uh, the chain of command, to put the men in position there. And uh, again, the initial Union attacks will be delivered against the right and right center of Vincent's brigade, against the 16th Michigan 
and against the 44th New York. We don't know how Vincent would have handled later on because Vincent is wounded, uh, mortally wounded, before the attacks really begin against Chamberlain. So uh, I would say that if, uh, uh, if Vincent had not been there, would the brigade have ever been up there? I don't think they would because uh, uh, he's, he's bypassing a Mossback as who, as, uh, 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 who would be, incidentally, for the trivia of pursuit, the oldest division commander on the field at Gettysburg, uh, General Barnes. So uh, my answer is Vincent. But, Ed, given your uh, admiration for Nathan Bedford Forrest, over here. All right, we're, we're, given your admiration for Nathan Bedford Forrest, let me ask you a question then about Thompson Station when Earl Van Doren's uh, Confederates forced the Union troops to surrender on March the 5th, 1863. Colburn was the Union commander. Uh, tell me the regiments that made up his brigade. Well, I'll tell you right off, and I'll tell you is uh, the 33rd Indiana one. Okay. Again, I'll have to take a rain check on the others. I know Coburn's regiment right off. Okay, Ed. Champions Hill, significance in preservation. The, what Champions is? Champions Hill. Champions Hill. Yeah. Significance in preservation. All right, Champion Hill uh, is one of the battles, uh, the five battles that Grant fights when he crosses the Mississippi River. Uh, Port Gibson, if you want to make a capsulize it on the first day of May, he secures his bridgehead east of the Mississippi, just like the, uh, the Allies do in Normandy. He's, uh, he's uh, sure the Confederates have failed to turn him back. Then if you, the next battle is the Battle of Raymond, in which uh, a detached Confederate force comes out and attacks McPherson's Corps at the Battle of Raymond. In view of the, uh, the, the strength of the Confederate attack, McPherson's exaggeration of the numbers of Confederates involved caused Grant to change the direction of his march, which has been north uh, to east. So he does the same thing. I like to pull analogies from World War II, the same thing that Patton does. Changes direction 90 degrees and goes to Jackson. Runs the Confederates out of Jackson, and then changes the direction of march 180 degrees as he moves back toward uh, Vicksburg, showing uh, Jack, uh, Grant's ability, this adaptation, this able to uh, rapid inter improvisation of Grant, his flexibility of command. And he will engage the Confederates at Champion Hill, and he will beat them at Champion Hill, and badly. Now that with the defeat at Champion Hill, he's ensured the separation of Johnston's and, and Pepperton's army and will, uh, and will drive the uh, Confederates back into Vicksburg. When he drives them back into Vicksburg, it, uh, it's, uh, except if uh, 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 severe blunders on the Union part, Vicksburg has to fall. So the Battle of, uh, the Battle of Champion Hill uh, ensures uh, the, uh, uh, the siege of Vicksburg and the eventual fall. So you're gonna say if you uh, take a number of battles together, it's, a, it's a, in a string of uh, pearls, it's the one that breaks the Confederate resistance, drives them back in. St. Cloud is your hotel.
I may come up with your regiments before I'm through. I may come up with your regiments. I won't give you as good a guarantee as the St. Cloud Hotel. Yes. Ed, uh, since we have some esteemed historians here today, um, you fought at Guadalcanal. Name Edson, Puller, Vandegrift. In the Civil War, which officers can you come up with that would remind you of those three and why? All right, Edson, uh, excuse me. Well, Don Puller. Puller's a battalion commander on Guadalcanal. So, uh, Puller, you would look at, you could say, if I'm, uh, I, I would say if I was at Gettysburg, I would say, <coughs> let's, no, I'm, go, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick more moral. Because Puller is a fighter, I'm going to pick him more than Chamberlain. I'm going to pick Puller more as a moral. Because the Marines swore by him, but they usually take 50 and 60%. For, for World War II, as Steve knows, 60% uh, casualties in two days is big for World War II. And guys that can go in as a regimental commander on, on Pelleyu, and take 60% casualties and still swear by the son of a bitch. He has, he, he has, to, he has to have a rapport with the man. That means, uh, as anybody knows, uh, a, a colonel, uh, you, uh, the, you like your colonel or your lieutenant colonel to be with you. You don't want, like our colonel, Colonel Williams, uh, he had the deepest foxhole on Guadalcanal. <laughs> <laughs> No, Colonel Farrell on Guadalcanal. He had the deepest foxhole, at least in the regiment. So naturally, he had. All right, so we've got. Uh, I picked out one for. Uh, uh, for uh, all right, now Edson would be a higher command level at, at, than Puller on Guadalcanal. Edson would uh, be a battalion commander, and he ends up a uh, chief, uh, 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 a division chief of staff. So Edson is. Uh, he's also a fighting man. He's also uh, a little more cerebral than Puller. I don't want Puller's uh, uh, ghost striking me down. Uh, I would say uh, uh, he would be more on the on the uh, on the order. I would hate. To, uh, we're not going back to Hancock and Forrest again because that gets old, I probably would go back to them, but let's think of somebody else uh, to add a little variety there. Uh, so we want somebody, an Edson's thing that is cerebral and also a fighting man. Uh, probably, uh, since he has a lot of innovations, uh, since I'm going to, again, I've got to go one on each side. So I'm probably going to go out west on the Confederate side and pick up Pat Claiborne on the western side for a, good, a fighting man that is also uh, somewhat cerebral. Uh, and you might say, uh, uh, we might, uh, if he was, uh, I would say since he was a division commander out west and only a brigade commander in the east most of the time, I think I'd go back to the one that Steve mentioned, Emory Upton, so we've got both sides covered there. But any, when you ask any of these speculative ones, I'll go both a Confederate and a Union. Anyway. We got to, all right, get this man, then you better go over in this way, because we haven't got any over there, okay? Yeah, I want to ask you a question about Lee and Grant. I grew up with the notion, Butcher Grant. Grant had the superior numbers, the superior weaponry, and he wore down Lee and the Confederacy. 
And I read some new stuff that indicates Grant was underappreciated. He was a fighter and also cerebral, that he was a better strategic thinker in many ways than Lee was. And I know that uh, Professor Rowland spoke to this group last month, talking, I missed the meeting, talking about Lee. But what about any new material on Grant that he, in fact, comes off looking better than just a guy who fought like a World War I butcher? And I'd like to get your view on All that. All right, uh, the question is Grant vis-a-vis -vis Lee. Now, when, in my youth, <laughs> and up till about, if that question had been asked up to, 40 year, uh, to 30 years ago, I would say Lee hands, hands down above Grant. Lee is a father, and still Lee is a father figure. That army would, uh, would have dissolved, I think, in 64 if it had not been for Lee. But as a, uh, as a modern soldier, you would have to say uh, General Grant. Now, one thing about Grant, I'll fall back to the first thing I like about him, when they asked Sherman, Grant's dead, and they'll ask Sherman, who's the best general, you or General Grant? Sherman will say, I know a lot about, I've read military history. I know military theory. He boils down, I'm smarter than Grant. After all, Grant never, outside of in Doc, uh, Professor Mahan's course at West Point, Grant never read any military engineering or any books unless it was required. The, 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 you check what he checked out from the library, they're novels and romance novels. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and then he ends up in saying, and this is important, he says, I worry what, uh, says Grant didn't worry what the enemy is doing. And I sure as hell do. It goes back to the story that Grant tells in his memoirs. It's when he's in command of that 21st Illinois, after he's shaped him up a little bit, and he crosses the river at Quincy and goes out on that railroad that goes from Hannibal over to St. Joe. And he runs into some Confederates, and Grant is really nervous. He's been a brave battery commander in the Mexican War, but here you have the responsibility of men, a large number of men. Small number compared to what he's going to have eventually. And what does he do? He says, I'm very worried. He says, I'm, I'm practically, he's doubting himself. And then when he finally screws up his courage and advances, the Confederates have fled. That ind indicates to him that the other side also has grave fears. At Donaldson, at Shiloh, yes, he's lost, but he comes back and wins because uh, of he uh, has that stick to uh, At Vicksburg, as I said before, these authors that call Grant a butcher, is he a butcher? He fights the Confederates captures 29,500 Confederates, 173 cannon, uh, 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 100,000, uh, 2 million rounds of ammunition, loses 10,000 men, killed, wounded, and missing, while inflicting 9,000 casualties, killed, wounded, and missing on the Confederates. That's 40,000 casualties, as I read it, between the 29th day of March and the 4th day of July, 
at the cost of 10,000 men himself without going through. So what is that? Does that, does that look like a butcher? Doesn't, it doesn't in my book. He then goes east, and he, uh, he knows uh, he's got the president's confidence, and he, he has got down the war to its fine dimensions. Beat the Confederate armies. Grind them down. Keep the pressure on them, and you're going to win. And of course, no one may be more magnanimous than he is. That's when he's on the great, the two, the, probably the, one, of the two, one of the few half a dozen great days in American history is when Grant and Lee meet in the Wilbur McLean parlor on that uh, good, uh, that uh, Palm Sunday uh, on in April 1865, when he is he is magnanimous to the extreme and takes a great step, at least, to until the politicians get involved to rebinding the wounds of war. Next, <clears throat> back here, Ed. We go by the microphone behind you. What? Mike. Okay, <clears throat> Ed. On the Western Waters, did Stanton and Ellett's rams, which were not armored, without guns, and operated independently. Did they help or did they hinder the combined operations of the Army and Navy on the Western waters? All right, the Ellert Rams. Now, one of the, the you got these, you get, Charles Ellert is one of the great engineers of the Mississippi River. Big ego, knows he's good. Built the first, one of the first, the first suspension bridge across the Ohio River. So he's going to come up with this idea of using a fast-moving steamboat with a sharp bow, reinforcing the bow, and using it for ramming. Even today, even the, the battleship may be as dead as a dodo bird, but all battleships have that uh, below the waterline jut far forward. That dates to when the battleship is first designed. Because the battleship, even in this century, is designed for ramming. So he uh, does it do any good? Yes. For instance, at the Battle of Memphis, I think it's a wonderful day on June 6th. And 10th, just like more, more football fans than they used to have when the foot, foot Houston Oilers played in, Houston, in Memphis when they moved, 10,000 people. Half the population of Memphis assembling on the bluffs overlooking Memphis to watch the Confederate squadron, commanded by Ed Montgomery, gain a rep repeat of what they've done to the Yankees at Plum Point Bend on the 9th of May, when they proved they could do pretty good. Also proved the Yankees could raise vessels faster than we could the Cairo, because they put two Union ironclads on the bottom that day. Mound City and Cincinnati. So as a crowd cheers, and Davis's ironclads come down the river bucking like a, a horde of elephants, they suddenly turn and reverse and head upstream. Passing downstream at forced draft are Queen of the West and Monarch. And on, almost on their own, they throw the Confederate squadron into, uh, into a wild melee, 
poor old General Lovell gets rammed and goes to the bottom with over half of his crew as the cheers of the audience on the Memphis Bluffs change to groans. Two of the Union, uh, two of the Confederate rams miss, collide. Within a matter of an hour, the Confederate squadron, except for one vessel which survives, is sunk, captured, or aground. And Ellet is the only one seriously injured. He's taking a bullet, bullet ball in his ankle. His son, Charles Rivers, 18 years old, will go ashore, and the mayor of Memphis will surrender the city. The Rams then will, with the death of Ellet, then become neither feast nor famine. They become the Mississippi Marine Brigade. No relationship, thank God, to the United States Marine Corps. <laughs> They're kind of an independent entity of their own. And they will have some advantage then, but their great day had been, of course, at the Battle of Memphis. Sir, uh, McClellan is remembered largely for his conceit, his arrogance toward Lincoln, his failures in the battlefield, and then for his run for the presidency. How much credit, if any, do you believe General McClellan deserves for having created the army with which Meade and Grant eventually won the war? I think, uh, I think General McClellan deserves a great deal of credit for creating an army, uh, for getting an army that uh, at least believes in itself, and undoubtedly believed in McClellan at first. So he is important. Now, in, the, in modern times, you would give uh, General McClellan the same job that you gave General McNair in World War II to create uh, uh, an army in the United States with a pipeline to Europe. Uh, so uh, McClellan, I think, uh, 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 he fails to realize that he's created this army He's failed to realize that the war has reached a stage where it will not be a reunification uh, and the Confederate states come back in as equals. There are certain things that are going to have to be different. And he also uh, lacks self-confidence. Uh, he, he wants every gator to be in position. He wants, uh, he, uh, uh, he wants to be sure of victory, and there's no, uh, there's no way of ever being sure of, a of, of winning. He likes, so uh, yes, he, would, he owes a, a debt for the creation of the army, uh, but uh, he, the army's been created, and he lacks, uh, he lacks the steel of character uh, to risk it in a battle, as you say, as they used to say, as Johnson says at uh, Shiloh, to risk the armies on the iron dice of battle. Yes, could you describe the involvement of the uh, Illinois 45th Lead Mine Regiment at Shiloh? All right, the 45th Illinois, of course, at Shiloh, is in the, uh, is in the div division uh, at that time, uh, I believe it's in the division uh, commanded by General McLaren. And uh, McLaren's division is in camp about a mile in rear of Sherman's camp at Shiloh Church. 
Now, when uh, Sherman, of course, will be surprised, as great as any general ever will be, but he then rallies, and his men will fight for about an hour and a half. During this time, uh, uh, McLaren is able to uh, turn his men out, form them in front of their camps, and after Sherman falls back, they fall back on McLaren's division. McLaren will hold a while, and then they'll be eventually bend them on back. And on day uh, two, uh, McLaren and Sherman's divisions will participate in the Union counterattack advancing to the left of Wallace's division. I'd like to ask your opinion. Uh, how significant was the death of Albert Sidney Johnson at uh, Shiloh, not only for the battle, but also for the remainder of the war in the Western Theater? What's that? Uh, the second the, part I didn't the hear. The death of Albert Sidney Johnson, not just uh, for the Battle of Shiloh, but also for the, the rest All of right. the theater. All the right. Uh, you've heard the question. Now, Albert Sidney Johnston, uh, up until the Battle of Shiloh, the day before Shiloh, is, I would say, has lost the confidence of most of the Confederate politicians. But he retains the confidence of one person. And that confidence of that one person is the confidence of a person that is most important of all uh, to the Confederacy. That is, he has the confidence of Jefferson Davis. And I think Jefferson Davis really means it when, he said, when they're criticizing Johnston. And he says, if Johnston is not a general, we, might as, we, we do not have one, and we might as well make peace. So he, uh, so Johnston, of course, up till that, up till that, up till the day, uh, evening before, when he had that meeting, Beauregard wants to go back. Says they're entrenched up to their eyebrows. Uh, Bragg will support. Uh, Bragg will argue to go back, and that's when Johnston says, uh, "I would attack them if they were a million, because he says if they're entrenched." Uh, they, uh, we will, uh, we will, uh, they, we, they will be on a narrow front. And his decision is, his, that's his one decision he's going to make. Now, when he makes that decision, he then uh, does not change Beauregard's deployment. But this is not a discussion of that. We're talking, discussing. Then uh, he makes the decision after they've driven apprentices' men from their camps that uh, he's going to have to take charge of the Confederate right. And when he finds it stalled, again, he will use his uh, personal magnetism uh, to rally the men. As he rides along the line of the 45th Tennessee, after they have fallen back along in front of them with this cup, he is picked up out of a Union camp. When they're plundering the camps, and he says, this is my prize, my souvenir. As he rides along the line, he'll tap their bayonets and say the bayonet is a noble weapon. And then he, and he will then lead the men forward. They will, I hate to say it, since you got, we're from Illinois, they will sweep the men of, General, of Colonel MacArthur's brigade, good Chicago boy, good member of the St. Andrews Society, out of the way, but in it, he will be mortally wounded. Now, you can argue, would the Confederates have won if Johnston hadn't been wounded? I don't, until, that's why these battlefields are important to walk. As, Steve, as I remember my friend Steve, when I first time I meet him, he comes up with something I had never noticed. He said, they all talk about Halleck taking 20 days, uh, 30 days to march from Pittsburgh Landing to Corinth. 
And Steve, since he's bicycling, notices there are no real trenches till you get about five miles from Corinth. Now, when you read it close, they made the march to within uh, five miles of Corinth in about three days. Then they do the regular entrenchment. But then until I tell you walk that advance across Dill's branch, you're going to realize the Confederates better have a lot more than two and a half brigades if they're going to cross Dill's branch. Now, granted, if he, uh, uh, the battle goes like it did, the Confederates draw off, uh, he would, uh, they would have still had him, and he would have had the important thing that Beauregard doesn't. He possesses the president's confidence. Now, how that would have translated as the war progresses, but he has that one advantage over every, uh, every other Confederate general except Robert E. Lee, and he has more confidence. President Davis at this time has, uh, 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 has a lot more confidence in jo than Albert Sidney Johnson than he has in Bobby Lee. Ed? Uh, on July 3rd, 1863, I'm not. What? July 3rd, 1863, I'm not presuming that Pickett's charge had any real uh, chance of success. However, do you think Frank Haskell aggrandized his role in rallying the troops at the point where Armistead and the Confederates hit the stone wall? Who's that? Frank Haskell. Frank Haskell. And do you remember what town he's buried in? I told you. Yes. All right. <laughs> now, Frank Haskell, we've got to pay attention to what he says. He's a given loyalist. Uh, he is there. He plays an important role. Now, there has never been anybody, whether it's myself as a private, a colonel, or a captain, in writing a report or his reminiscences that don't make yourself the center stage. Right, Steve? Because So that means that Haskell is an important player because he's there. And it isn't part of human nature to belittle your accomplishments or being there. Yeah, he's, a, he's important in a rallying, a helping to rally the truth, particularly since his principle is wounded about that time. And he also writes a damn good account. He's a good writer. Uh, but I think they would have been, even if, even if Haskell had been killed in the bombardment, I think the attack would have still been repulsed just about the same, in the same, it would have played out in the same scenario as it was. But he's a, uh, yeah, I'm glad he's there. He writes a good account, and he's an important cog but he is not the alpha and omega of throwing him back. The last question. Yes, at Hampton Roads, which ship do you feel won the battle, the uh, Monitor or the Virginia? At, at Hampton Roads, Monitor wins it because Virginia withdraws in to the Elizabeth River and the Gosport Navy Yard. Now, Wells knows, as well as all other Union authorities, that you, we, we, we've, got, we've got Virginia trumped. That means we're not going to risk monitor in, a, in any type of engagement against Virginia again. Thus, when Virginia gets repaired, comes out again, a monitor simply uh, uh, takes position between her and the ships, 
and doesn't engage Virginia. Virginia comes out looking for a fight, and then, of course, it's all going to be played out anyway. Because when uh, uh, McClellan, uh, when, uh, when Johnston evacuates the Yorktown-Warwick line on the light night of the 3rd and 4th, on the 5th, who gets there? You're going to get the President of the United States making a command decision as Commander-in-Chief. He gets there, and old Dix, isn't, Dix, and, uh, Dix and Goldsboro ain't thinking. And Lincoln goes out on reconnaissance, and he realizes uh, the Confederates don't have much in Norfolk. So the President, uh, along with, you can imagine, using the Secretary Chase as putting him ashore to make a reconnaissance. <laughs> so and the President's out there, and they're going, they're, the President's going to go Goldsboro and Dix, and they're going to land at Norfolk. The mayor is going to hand over the keys of the kingdom uh, and the Union, and that means Virginia is doomed, and uh, my, so uh, Monitor has accomplished its mission. All Monitor needs is a draw, and she got more than a draw on the ninth day. She forced Virginia to fish and cut bait, but the Navy is not going to risk her in a harebrained scheme of battling Virginia and having Virginia win the monitor wins round one. There won't be a round two. Uh, it'll be watchful waiting, and round two will come, uh, results with the occupation of Norfolk, and big boom, and that's the end of Virginia. Thank you, Ed. Yes, Ed, but before you make your remarks, I'd just like to give you as a token of our appreciation our silver medallion with your name inscribed on it and today's date. Thank you. And if you'd like, I'll hold it for a few moments while you make some final remarks. I just want to make a few remarks about how wonderful this day is, how wonderful it is to be here with my friends from the Chicago Roundtable, who I've known since some of them from the middle 50s, from a field trip since 61. Uh, Steve, who I met when he bicycled to Vicksburg, and I know Steve remembers it, but that's the day I discovered red bugs. As we sat down, being from Montana, and I don't think you knew red bugs before, did you? We sat down by the second Texas lunette, and I, I, I was wondering what these bites I had the next day was. <laughs> Took me a while to figure out what they were. So, so they all go back to memories uh, uh, of uh, many campaigns, and uh, again, thinking of the various people. I always think, uh, they talked about how long Marshall Krolik has been with me. My favorite story on Marshall Krolik uh, <laughs> is, of course, in 19, uh, 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 1968. You uh, visit uh, Fredericksburg that time, and they set me next to this fellow on the bus. It's Marshall Krolik. And by the end of the day, with all his questions, I was thinking I better, I, I asked, asked Gil Twist that night. I says, who's that obnoxious guy I'm sitting <laughs> Since then, uh, Marshall has become a very dear friend, as most of you are that I know well here, 
And I just want to thank you for inviting me here, say how wonderful all you friends have been through the years, and every, every day you come out, it's a learning experience, and by dealing with people like you, it keeps a 77-year-old young. Thank young, you. Very young. Thank you, Ed. Oh, I got one other thing. Uh, one other thing. I'm going, supposedly I'm going to see a mysterious woman. For years since I met Mar uh, Marvin, he was always saying, Roz is going to be on the tour. She just loves the Civil War. This will, tonight, if she shows up, this will be the second time I've ever seen Roz. She'll be here. Thank you, Ed. Of course, Roz is the famous one that said, if you've seen one gap, you've seen them all. <laughs> Before we break, I want to point out that another famous author is here, Mr. Robert Rosen, and he'll be signing his new book on the Thank you. Jewish Confederates at the bookstore. Now we're going to take a half hour break. Enjoy yourself.